Welcome to the Just Pod, a podcast by the Criminal Justice Section of the ABA, the unified voice of criminal justice. Welcome to this episode of The Just Pod. Today, we are joined by Arjun Sethi. Arjun, thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. Arjun is a professor with Georgetown University Law School and also the author of American Hate Survivors Speak Out, which I believe was listed as an NPR best book, right, Arjun? Would you mind telling our listeners about this book before we jump into our topic for today and where they can find it? Sure. So in 2018, I published a book called American Hate Survivors Speak Out. And I wrote the book because prior to the election of Donald Trump, I was in touch with community organizations across the country, Muslim, Arab, South Asian, Sikh organizations. And what I heard was that survivors of hate violence on the ground felt like their stories were being excluded, that the media was more interested in hearing about white supremacists and why people hate, as opposed to understanding the impact of hate and what it means to live as a survivor of hate violence. And so I spent most of 2017 traveling the country. I went to Whitefish, Montana, Tulsa, Oklahoma, Victoria, Texas, Providence, Rhode Island, meeting with different survivors of hate violence. And the book American Hate Survivors Speak Out was the outcome. It's, again, a compilation of testimonials of people who were directly impacted by hate in connection with the 2016 presidential election. You can order it at any of your local independent bookstores at Barnes & Noble. And of course, it is also available at Amazon.com. And yes, thank you so much. It was an NPR Best Book of the Year in 2018. Well, thank you for sharing that with our listeners. And listeners, this is why we have Arjun with us today, because we're going to revisit our conversation around hate crime. A few episodes ago, we had Jeff Sai join us to talk about the spike in Asian American hate crime. Unfortunately, we're still continuing to see Asian American hate crime. But fortunately, we are starting to see some traction in action being taken to mitigate and interrupt this hate that we're seeing. So we've invited Arjun here to help walk us through what's being done on the federal level. Arjun, following the hate crime or mass murder in Atlanta, Attorney General Garland sent a memo to DOJ employees in which he ordered a review to be completed within a month to determine specific steps that could be taken to better combat hate crimes. So Arjun, can you tell our listeners more about the action called for in this memo and what impact this could make? So Attorney General Garland did write a memo, and in the memo, he said that he was launching a 30-day expedited review for how the Department of Justice could better respond to hate crimes that are surging across America. And so it's just two pages. I would encourage folks to read it, but a few of the steps he outlines are helping figure out how best to better track the reporting of hate crimes and hate incidents so we have a better understanding of where they're occurring, how often they're occurring. He called for the prioritization of criminal investigations and prosecutions to hold offenders accountable. Um, he talked about utilizing civil enforcement authorities as well to address hate incidents. He called for U.S. attorney's offices to be involved. 
coordination between the FBI, U.S. attorney's offices, and various other branches of the Department of Justice. And he also called for the federal government to meet with communities and community organizations to hear and listen from them as to how better to respond to hate crimes and hate incidents. Great. Thank you so much. And now, since then, we're also seeing traction in the legislative branch. So President Biden just signed the COVID-19 Hate Crime Act. Last we discussed this subject, Jeff Sai introduced us to legislation that was just being introduced at the time as well, which is now turned into an act. So Arjun, can you tell our listeners about what this act provides for and how it might impact hate crime reporting and enforcement? And also, if you could help us just understand what this would mean, is it just going to make an impact on the federal level? Is it still up to states to make their own determinations as you explain the impact of this? Yeah, thanks so much. So the law that was just passed is a much more comprehensive measure. This is an actual bill that was passed by both chambers of Congress, signed by the president. And it really calls for several things. You know, first, I would say there's just general guidance for law enforcement agencies with respect to establishing a mechanism for online reporting of hate crimes, expanding public education campaigns aimed at raising awareness of hate crimes and reaching victims. And then sort of the biggest component of the law is actually called the College Jabara Heather Hire No Hate Act. It's called the College Jabara Heather Hire No Hate Act because Khalid Jabara was an Arab American. I'm friends with the family. I actually interview the family for my book. Um, Khalid Jabara was an Arab American who was murdered in his home in August 2016 by his next door neighbor who was a white supremacist. But if you look at the FBI data reflecting on the year 2016, there were no hate crimes in Tulsa that year. Meaning, according to the FBI, the murder of Kala Jabara never took place. And the same is true with respect to the murder of Heather Heyer, right? And so Heather Heyer is the young woman who participated in the counter protest to the Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville in 2017, who was murdered when a car ran her down. If you look at the FBI data that reflects on 2017, according to the city of Charlottesville, there were zero hate crimes that year. And so the family of Kala Jabara, the family of Heather Heyer, in partnership really with dozens of organizations across the country, have really pushed the Jabara Heather Heyer No Hate Act. And so that is actually part of this new law. And so really this law does a few things. Um, One, it encourages states and localities to collect better data on hate crimes occurring within their jurisdiction, because better data allows us to see, again, who's being harmed, where, and by whom. It encourages them, again, to take steps to educate members of the community, educate members of the public, work with affected communities so that they better understand what hate crimes are, the resources that are available. It establishes and encourages the creation of hate crime hotlines. And then it also asks states and localities to meet with an appointed liaison to communities, again, who are impacted by hate. And if states and localities are willing to take the steps I just outlined, the federal government is willing to give them a grant 
to give them additional resources. And so to the final step of the Jabara Heather Hire No Hate Act is actually a report by the attorney general, which then analyzes this new data that comes in from states and localities, both quantitatively and qualitatively, so that we can have a better understanding of what hate looks like in America. And just so the listeners have an understanding of how bad the data actually is. According to the FBI in 2020, that's the latest report that we have, the 2020 report that looks at hate crimes committed in 2019. There were roughly 8,000 hate crimes committed in the United States. That's a big number. We should be concerned about that. However, if we look at the National Crime Victimization Survey, which is a self-reporting mechanism, the true number of hate crimes is actually closer to 250,000. Right, so there's a big difference between 8,000 and 250,000. And that gulf exists because up until this point, hate crime reporting has for the most part been voluntary. It's not been mandatory. And so the vast majority of states and localities don't bother reporting or they report zero hate crimes because they wanna pretend like hate doesn't exist in their backyard. And so this new measure is really about getting better data. So again, we have a better sense of who's being targeted where and by whom. Yeah. Well, and also something we've talked about on recent episodes with Dr. Golub and Jeff Tsai is the challenge of proving that something was in fact a hate crime. And so, you know, intent, that burden of proof that lies in that. So uh, what does this act do to help with that? Almost nothing, right? Yeah. Um, it does almost nothing. And thank you for laying that out because it's a really important point. And just so I mean, I'll get very specific about it. So there is now circuit court precedent in the United States that has basically found that to prove a hate crime, you have to show that hate was the sole motivating factor, not just a factor. And so the most prominent example of this was the terrible murder that happened in Chapel Hill, North Carolina some years ago, where three Muslims were actually murdered in their home at point blank range by their next door neighbor who had said nasty things about Muslims, posted nasty things about Muslims online, but the Department of Justice never prosecuted it as a hate crime because there was also a longstanding parking dispute between the neighbor and the Muslims he murdered that day. And so they felt like they could not meet that standard. And so this is why activists have long advocated and said, the standard should be whether hate was a significant contributing factor, not the sole factor, because it's hard to get into someone's head. It's hard to say that they committed this terrible act only out of hate, as opposed to out of hate and sort of these other factors. And so that is a big issue with respect to hate crime jurisprudence. And that's why, you know, in all the years that, you know, the Bird Shepherd Act has existed, that was one of the first laws President Obama signed as president. I think there's been less than 50 hate crime prosecutions. So as much as we actually talk about it on the federal level, I think the total number of hate crime prosecutions is something, it's not many, it's several dozen. And that's again, truthfully, it's responsibility mostly of the states, but it's also that the Department of Justice is very reluctant to intervene precisely because of that onerous legal standard that you just described. Mm -hmm. So still more work to be done. Let's talk about advocacy more mentioned activists just now. And it's certainly not my intention to suggest that we don't want to punish hate crimes, 
but I find myself curious about how this act fits into criminal justice reform. Generally, it seems like the trend for criminal justice advocacy leans away from increased incarceration, more toward restorative justice and things like that. So, and also from conversations we've had on this podcast, you know, what I just mentioned, it seems like increasing enforcement can infect decrease the number of hate crimes that get reported or convicted of a hate crime. So does this act fit in the general calls for criminal justice reform? Is there opposition? And then also, if it does fit, how can it help? Can you speak to all of that for our listeners? I can. And so thank you for that question. It's really important. And there is a real tension in the field. Like I said, there were lots of organizations. There were plenty of survivors of hate crimes, including Susan Bro, the mother of Heather Heyer, the family of Khalid Jabara, who pushed for the Jabara Hire No Hate Act, you know, who pushed for the passage of, you know, the Hate Crimes Act that, again, we just saw, you know, signed into law. At the same time, more than 100 Asian and LGBTQ organizations actually signed a coalition letter opposing that law on the grounds that you just described, basically saying, quote, hate crime classifications and statistics do not change the structural conditions that lead to violence against marginalized communities. And so they say that really, I think as abolitionists, we cannot trust nor rely on the police to protect us. And so they're calling for the shifting of resources from law enforcement to communities. They're saying that violence should be designated as a public health issue. And that really a lot of the violence, if not the majority of the violence that Asian communities, black communities, immigrant communities, and other marginalized folks have experienced has come at the hands of the state. And so should we really be relying on the state to help us respond to bias-related incidents when they have you know, so often targeted us. And so what I can tell you is, is that these conversations are happening. There's a divide in the field. I will also tell you that I think there's also a tension in some cases between survivors of hate crimes, many of whom want hate crime laws, believe in hate crime reporting. That's why, again, this bill bears the name of, you know, College Bar and Heather Heyer and organizations who feel differently. And so I think those differences have to be reconciled. I think we need to create a table where survivors have a seat, where scholars have a seat, where activists have a seat, and come together and think about the best way forward. And we also need to be mindful that, you know, in some cases, like I can tell you, you know, in Providence, Rhode Island, and I wrote about this in my book, there is a very sophisticated community defense program. And so in my book, I talk about how in 2016, the Providence Youth Student Movement, they're an organizing group in Rhode Island, actually that works with their bases, Asian Americans, refugees, and the LGBTQ community. You know, they walk into their office one day after their big gala on a Monday morning, and they see that knives had been stabbed into the desk, their equipment had been rearranged, and a noose was hanging from the ceiling. They're an abolitionist organization, so they did not call the police. Instead, they put out a press release. They doubled down on their community defense programs. They have a volunteer network that runs in the thousands. And so they felt like they had a system that they could rely on 
to respond to that hate crime. Those systems exist, for example, in places like Jackson Heights. They exist arguably in places like Queens. They exist in you know, a place like Boston. Some would even say, even in a place like Atlanta, where there's some really wonderful organizing going on, you know, we increasingly have more robust community defense programs there. But we don't necessarily have that in Whitefish, Montana. We don't necessarily have that in Tulsa, Oklahoma. And so when also thinking about what the appropriate response is, we also have to be mindful of you know, this sort of urban-rural divide. And again, making sure we get perspectives from all of these different areas and from all of these different players. So I think it's safe to say that the field is trying to kind of figure it out. And I actually take comfort in the fact that these conversations are happening because the truth is the vast majority of the violence that we have experienced in America, when I say we, I mean marginalized folks. I am a sick American. You know, six have experienced different forms of hate violence, but also different forms of state violence for as long as we've been in this country has come at the hands of the state. And so I think it's good we're having these conversations. I just think that we've got to have these conversations among one another to figure out the best way forward. Yeah. Well, thank you for contributing to our conversation here on this podcast. Certainly a very nuanced topic. And, you know, as much as people want solutions, sometimes we just have to make sure that we're looking at all those layers. So thank you for helping us do that in this conversation here. Before we wrap up today, we've talked about a lot Do you have any final thoughts that you would like to leave with our listeners? I do. You know, when we think about hate violence and we think about state violence in America, they can seem insurmountable, right? We see what happens when we turn on the evening news and it feels like every other day there's a story of, you know, a Black person being lynched in this country. And it's horrifying. I'm speaking to you today, the day after the one year anniversary of the murder of George Floyd. But if we think about hate violence and state violence and interpersonal violence as local problems, because it's a national problem, but they're also local problems. They happen in our communities. They happen in our neighborhoods. I think it becomes something we can take on. And so in that vein, I just want to encourage the listeners to just take action. That could be convening a conversation with survivors at your house of worship at your YMCA, at your workplace, at your office. It could be speaking to members of your family who continue to deny the existence of hate violence, who continue to deny the existence of police violence, to continue to deny the existence of mass incarceration. It could be working with your children, getting them to understand the intricacies of this. I will tell you, I've been teaching law for seven years. I first started teaching at Georgetown in 2014. And now it's 2021. I am shocked at how sophisticated my students are. The political education that we have seen in the last seven years, and some of it's partly due to the internet, but some of it's also because they're just cut from a different cloth has been extraordinary. And so don't give up hope. Don't be passive. Be an upstander. That's another thing you can do. There are upstander trainings across the country that you can take, that you can bring to your community to learn what to do if you see an act of hate, if you see an act of hate violence so that you're not just stuck, you don't freeze, which is what most people do. So be an upstander, you know, be somebody who supports uh, marginalized communities and, you know, be an agent of change in your local communities. And thank you so much again for having me on the show. 
Well, thank you, Archie. And again, it's great to have you contribute to this conversation and add upon you know, the input and insights provided by Dr. Golub and Jeff Sai on the subject of hate crime as we continue to draw attention to this conversation and try and be a leader in this space. So thank you again for contributing to that. And listeners, again, this is Arjun Sethi, professor with Georgetown University Law School and author of American Hate Survivors Speak Out. So thank you again. And thank you to our listeners for joining us on this episode of Just Pod. <laughs>